ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, Richard Aidy with you. This is The Money. And today on the show, we're focusing on different generations. One of them's young people, the under 35s. They're dealing with the rough end of the pineapple. And economist Alison Pennington has been thinking about why that is. You'll hear from her later. We heard quite a bit about the wellbeing budget from the Treasurer last year. The principle is that a society's more than an economy. And Jim Chalmers wants to measure more than the standard economic metrics. Australia's a bit behind on this. Several countries have already adopted a similar approach, but none has gone as far as Wales. In 2015, it passed the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, which requires public bodies to think about the long-term impact of their decisions and to work to prevent problems like poverty, climate change and health inequalities. The law also established the position of Future Generations Commissioner for Wales, and the first holder of it is Sophie Howe, who recently completed her term. Sophie, welcome to The Money. Who decided what would be important for future generations? So in developing the legislation, the government worked with a range of non-profits and one in in particular to hold a national conversation with the citizens of Wales. And uh, it was called The Wales We Want. And the question posed was, what's the Wales you want to leave behind to your children, your grandchildren and and future generations to come? And that was a range of, you know, from anything from town hall meetings, online platforms, engagement with youth groups, participation by the Women's Institute who ran their own um, exercises throughout all of their members. Some of our local towns and cities ran their own versions of the Swansea We Want or the Llanelli We Want. And all of that information was gathered together. And the people of Wales came up with about 13 principles of things that they felt were important, things they wanted to leave behind to future generations. And they were things like, um, we want to make sure that Wales is fairer. Um, We want to make sure that we're protecting our rich natural resources to pass that on. We think that our culture, our heritage, our language are really important things to pass on to the next generation. And at the time, the UN Sustainable Development Goals were in development. So the government looked at what the people of Wales had said, what was happening at a UN level, and came up with seven well-being goals based on on both of those, those things. And these are long-term goals for Wales, the vision of the Wales that we want to leave behind. What, what is clear from, from what you've just been saying is that this process was taken up enthusiastically by the Welsh people. It wasn't just left to the usual suspects of government and think tanks and NGOs. Yes, absolutely right. And I think that's of critical importance in terms of that mandate. If you're going to set a long-term vision for a country, which I always think it's bizarre that, you know, it's really unique. (laughs) There's no other country in the world that has a long-term vision set out in law. You'd you'd think that a country would have, but they don't because we work on short-term electoral cycles. But if you're going to do that, it's really important the citizens of Wales are going to buy in to that and they feel this ownership. And I think perhaps that's some of the challenge with implementing the sustainable development goals uh, locally and, you know, within um, the, the member states, whether that's Australia, whether that's the UK, there's not really this sense of connection back to the SDGs. But if you can take the SDGs and localise them and make them relevant to your country, your area, then they're going to get that buy-in. And of course, one of the things that was added in the Welsh approach was these concepts around culture, heritage, language, which are actually missing from the UN SDGs. Mm. And um, that's 
a mistake, I think. As you, you were saying before, that, that this became a sort of statutory thing in Wales. It, it's in the law, effectively. It's in the law, yeah, which is what makes it unique. I don't think the government's talking about that here at the moment. It's just they're putting well-being in the budget, but I don't think anybody's talking about putting it in the law. So it's not the same level of commitment. No, it's not. It's a, um, a reasonable start. But I think the lessons that we've learned in Wales is a law is incredibly powerful. It's not the be-all and end-all because even though it's a law, I actually describe it as the biggest cultural change programme Wales and I'd argue probably any country has ever seen. So requiring our institutions not only to demonstrate how they're actively taking steps to reach these long-term goals, but how they're considering the long-term impact of all their decisions, how they're preventing problems from occurring or getting worse, how they're integrating, so getting outside of their departmental or organisational silos and having this sort of cross-pollination uh, of ideas and actions and delivering public services, working together and then involving citizens. Those are all principles set out in our law. And the fact that it applies not just to the government, but all of our main public institutions, and increasingly even those outside of the public sector, so our private sector, our voluntary sector, non-profits and so on, are adopting the framework of the Future Generations Act because they're saying, actually, we have this vision for Wales, so we all know where we're going. We can be part of a Team Wales approach to taking the action in our domain mm. to help us to get towards this vision of Wales, for Wales. What has your role involved? Because what it isn't is you being a kind of future cop and saying, <laughs> actually, that's not future enough and I'm going to compel you to change things. You, you didn't have that power. So, no, I couldn't force anyone to do anything or stop anyone doing anything. So my role is set out in the law is to be the guardian of the interests of the future generations of Wales, which sounds like something out of a Marvel comic, doesn't it? It but, does. Uh, <laughs> um, I can assure you I don't, I, I don't wear a, a, a cape <laughs> and I don't have magic powers. I sometimes wish that I did. But essentially what it means is sort of being the voice of future generations and being an advocate or the conscience, if you like, of, of future generations. And there's quite um, a power in the kind of of the soft power, if you if if you like, around that. So one of the first tests of the legislation was government plans to build a 13-mile stretch of motorway to deal with the problem of congestion on one of our, our major motorways. And they were intending to spend the entire of the Welsh government borrowing capacity on building this road. And I intervened in that decision and I asked the government, quite simply, to show me their workings. Please explain to me how you've considered the goal of a more prosperous Wales, which actually doesn't reference GDP, talks about a productive, innovative, low-carbon society, one which uses resources efficiently and proportionately and acts on climate change. Mm. I asked them to explain to me how it was in line with the goal of a resilient Wales, which is about our ecological resilience, because the plans were to go through a nature reserve, how it was in line with the goal of a healthier Wales. We already have illegal levels of air pollution so how is adding a, another road to that going to help how it's in line with the goal of a more equal wales 25 percent of the lowest income families in that area don't own a car so are we going to be spending the entire of our borrowing capacity on a scheme that benefits the already better off and put simply they couldn't really 
answer those questions. And, you know, this played out publicly, it played out in the media, it played out in a public inquiry, and it was widely regarded to be a done deal because whenever there's an argument, you know, which is pitched economy versus environment, economy always wins and environment always loses. And that's why you play that out in millions of decisions uh, at every level in government across every country in the world, and that is why we have a climate emergency. And so it was widely regarded that it was a done deal, it was going to go ahead, but the First Minister changed his mind. He stopped the road being built um, on the basis of the arguments that I'd put and instead set up a commission to look at how would we deal with the problem of congestion um, if we were applying this well-being lens, if we were aiming to achieve improved health, equality, environmental outcomes and so on. So if you're a big part of the role of scrutinising, assessing government policy, including the budgets, and I know in COVID with the emergency measures, you had key inputs there, but it's also that constructive criticism, isn't it? It's not just saying you shouldn't do that. It's saying, well, perhaps you should think about doing this. Yes, absolutely. And um, one of the statutory duties of the Future Generations Commissioner is to uh, publish every five years something called the Future Generations Report. It's specifically timed to land the year before the next parliamentary elections in Wales, with the idea that it should influence the uh, political election pledges for the parties going into the election. Uh, And so the first Future Generations Report, uh, my report, was published in, in 2020. And what we've seen since then is um, the two major political parties in Wales, Labour and and Plaid Cymru, over 50% of their manifestos, their election pledges, were things that were featured as my recommendations. And we've just done a a mapping of how that has actually played out now in terms of the programme for government for Wales. And about 60% of uh, the recommendations that I made are now in train in the programme for government. And some of those things are really progressive things like a universal basic income pilot, um, like um, stopping building roads and having a new transport strategy, like investment, uh, much greater investment in climate change, like targeting our skills programmes for the green economy towards those furthest from the labour market to women and black and Asian minority ethnic people who we want to have a really good opportunity to have access to these high quality jobs. So there's some really progressive things starting to happen in Wales. Mm. So you were the first in the role, you, mm-hmm. you've just finished. What would yes. you say to the Australian government about the need for a similar position here? And I should say, we actually get an intergenerational report, which is done by Treasury mm-hmm. every five years. This, that is mm-hmm. due later in the year. It has not tended to do a lot of shaping of policy up till now. No, and I think that is the challenge. Governments love a strategy, they love a report, they love a a framework or a set of metrics. And, you know, those things have their places. But actually, this is about changing the hearts and minds of the way that we do business in uh, public policy, politics and governance. This is about um, finding the people who are what I describe as the frustrated champions. So these are people who are in every organisation who've been able to see for a long time that there's a better way of doing things. They might be the social workers who've seen generation from generation of families coming into the care system because we've never got up front and tackled the real issues in those families. They might be the engineers who are being asked to build yet another road knowing in 15 years time that road will be just as full as the one um, that they've just extended and so on. So these people are having the permission of a 
legislative framework, giving them that permission to go and wave a piece of law at the people who don't want to change and who want to maintain the status quo, that is incredibly powerful. And it has to have ownership um, right across government. So if I were to start somewhere in government, I would say that the Treasury is a sensible place to, to start. And actually, our Act, although it covered all of government, the lead minister was our finance minister in the first instance. And, mm. you know, that was quite helpful. But it does have to permeate every aspect of what government and the rest of um, public services are doing to have that significant impact. So if we're serious here, would you say we need to have a similar process to the one you went through in Wales, where we're all invited to be part of this and we all, uh, as many of us as possible, give feedback on what we want the future generations to, to have here and what we want Australia to be? I think that's critically important because this is the gift of current generations in Australia to those yet to be born. This is the vision that they have for them and that has to be co-created with the public. Now, I know that the government have put in place some uh, resources where individual MPs can go off and hold consultations with their communities and so on. But our experience in Wales is that really needs to be coordinated. There really needs to be an in-depth response or approach to how we're getting to citizens whose voices are, are seldom heard. So they, they might be first generation people, they might be, um, you know, young people who don't tend to engage in these sorts of, you know, high level government consultation processes and so on. And their voices are absolutely critical. So I would say to the government, you know, well done on getting to this um, stage and it's a brilliant and progressive move. But I think that there are quite a number of public policy um, organisations and, you know, and I've been brought here from Wales by the Centre for Policy Development they are one of the organisations who are saying, let's make this a first step, but let's commit to a national conversation to really frame the detail of what these wellbeing goals should look like. Sophie, it's been really interesting talking to you. Thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Sophie Howe finished her term as Future Generations Commissioner for Wales last year. I'm sure you're familiar with the shorthand ways of dividing the adult population by age. There's the war generation, the baby boomers, Generation X, probably the best one, millennials and Gen Z. Well, economist Alison Pennington is particularly interested in the youngest two groups, broadly the under 35s. They face a smorgasbord of problems, low pay, insecure work, high rentals, big hex debts, dizzying property prices the rough end of the pineapple, in other words. And Alison believes she knows why. The embrace of neoliberalism from the 1980s on by a succession of governments. It was devised over time, but it really got its authority in the 70s and 80s inflation crisis. And one of its key tenets of, of its theoretical base is that we can control inflation by controlling the supply of money. And... It was really because we came into that stagflation crisis that neoliberalism got its ascendancy. But generally what it, what it argues is that governments really need to get out of the way of, of the most efficient form of economic organisation. And the best way to coordinate an economy, production and exchange, is through markets. And therefore governments shouldn't have trade barriers. They shouldn't, be, they shouldn't try to frame and harness capital investment 
in any public interest, which is the way that we had been doing things since post-war period. There should be no collective power exerted over the efficient, effective operation of a market. So unions are bad for the economy <laughs> generally because they, they stop people operating as individuals. And it politically got a lot of salience because we were witnessing the continued decline of the, the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. Stalinism and individualism, the idea that it was individual effort and there are no governments, there is no society there's just individuals and families, which I think was what Thatcher said. Yes, Thatcher and Reagan, who are both, whatever else you might think of them, gifted politicians and gifted political communicators, really kind of turbocharged this, didn't they? Oh, incredibly. They framed the politics of neoliberalism. They were able to really harness the mood of individual freedom, really, and connect that to an economic model. And I think that's what we've inherited now is decades of this. And, mm. and it's had huge implications But why has it particularly impacted younger Australians, especially when it comes to work? Well, since unions were anti-competitive and individuals had to operate in the market alone, wages increasingly became the site of competition between businesses. And so if wages are then in the firing line of competition, it means that the quality of, of work can decline, coupled with perspective that government shouldn't be providing jobs and that's where you see it coupled with austerity. You have then overall a situation where you have worse jobs, less entry-level opportunities and at the same time one of the big industry developments with neoliberalism is that we lost manufacturing, we stopped producing and we offshored a lot of those jobs and corresponding on the other side of that we have explosion of new services industries like hospitality and retail and, and healthcare and education and that explosion of new industries alongside the loss of that full-time standard good jobs associated with manufacturing, young people essentially become the fodder for, for those new industries. They essentially then go into an entirely new world of work that is unrecognisable from that of their parents. Mm. They are in worse quality jobs, jobs that are less likely to be able to build a life out of. They are jumping between multiple short-term uh, experiences and then they're at the, the forefront of the decline of worker power. So that's where they you see the explosion in wage theft. And there's a, a startling statistic that half of all 21 to 24-year-olds report earnings below minimum wage. I can remember doing bad jobs myself. But, of course, that was when I was a teenager and when I was at uni. And it wasn't when I started going into what I thought of as my career. And the difference is that these conditions, this lack of security, this uh, lack of prospect continues for young people much longer now. Absolutely. If you look at the statistics on the percentage of people with bachelor degrees or higher that are pulled in sectors that don't require their their qualifications, it is continually growing every year uh, since the GFC actually is a really key moment where things go south for young people. And The other thing to keep in mind with the generational experience is we've had an explosion in university education. This is the highest educated generation in Australia's history. Mm. But the promise of a secure and meaningful job, they have never eventuated for a lot of young people. The other key thing that's really different for young people compared to older gens is the compounding effect of the decline of public services. 
we turned so many things into markets that were originally public services for our parents, such that being able to access a GP that bulk bills, it's incredibly difficult. And what the combined effect of losing all of those supports, those extra work supports, those things outside of the experience of employment that lift you up, means that your dependence on whatever income you can earn on the job increases. So you have a higher uh, risk of exploitation and you're more likely to take whatever you can get because there is no other option. Alison, there's a lot of ideas, so I'm going to keep moving. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. just shut me up when you need me to. (laughs) You've got a chapter in the book titled The Wrong Tools, that younger Australians don't have the correct mechanisms to make real change. Now, there's a few reasons for this, but I'm very interested in your analysis of how class feeds into it, of how even thinking about class feeds into this. One of the very spectacular weapons of the neoliberal period has been the rise of internet technologies, because alongside that has been basically the apparatus to convince people particularly young people, that they can construct themselves as individuals and they can create their futures um, through this form of individual expression. And that was a concerted effort coming out of the post-war period to dismantle collective identities and dismantle the idea that you ever needed to relate to each other on an economic basis. I think young people are realising more and more those forms of individual expression and opinions and individual construction of self actually is no match for the economic weapon and power that is, you know, insecure work or the investor-dominated housing market. Alison, you lay out the huge problems that young people are facing and bell the cat that it's the fault of neoliberalism. But what can young people do to start making their lives better? So I think that the level of atomization and isolation is so profound for young people. I start from the building blocks of effective political action and that is create human bonds and social connectedness in your life and from that we build trust and if we're going to push back on this idea that everyone's out for themselves and we can't do things for each other or step up for someone we don't even know uh, then it's going to be difficult to build effective political movements. So I start from that first layer of building up human social bonds and then I move into you know what are the apparatuses we have on hand to be effective? And it's pretty difficult to go past unions because they are the largest volunteer organisations in Australia. They are at a historic level lows of, of unionisation rates of, of membership. But it still remains the fact that people have to work to earn an income to survive. They are still gathering in these places, workplaces, alongside others and do have common interests. There are huge barriers to unionisation, which is in part the challenge here. But I think for young people, they look at the history of a recently corporatist union movement and they say, I don't need or want another authority to tell me how it is that I'm going to improve my life. Especially if I, I have to pay for the privilege. Exactly. And I think this is the challenge for the union movement is to essentially provide a space for, for young people to combine their multiple layering issues. It's not just about a decent job and not being exploited on the job. But some of the key issues young people are really, really care about is housing and affordable housing and the climate crisis. And so we're kind of moving into this period where unions, they need to become broader spaces for young people to manifest everything they dream and want for a better life. And that is also a lot about having somewhere they can come together to connect, 
to meaningfully implement a new campaign to shape that campaign because they don't have those collective spaces in their life and I think they're crying out for them. Yeah. One big challenge is that when unions were stronger and more present in Australian life, we had more manufacturing, we had more places where people were physically gathered together. We're now more services. We, Since the pandemic, a lot of people working from home, not together. So that, that's a challenge. But you mentioned housing. What else, apart from getting unions going again, could we do to address the housing crisis? Uh, specifically on housing, good quality, higher density, but good public housing, social housing, is a meaningful way to fix the, the the crisis that they currently face in the rental market. And what, what will it take to get there? It's going to take government providing a massive national construction campaign. Um, and this is an all levels of government situation, right? This can't, this historically, it's never been very well led just by the Commonwealth. It's actually been states that have I'm thinking of the post-war period, we're most successful. But we know we've got local government that has to be absolutely keyed in with that. Yes. We can't talk about everything, but I do want to touch on tax reform. What are your thoughts about what we should be thinking of? I think we need a big, brave discussion in Australia about our tax system. One of the glaring insights into the collapse of the fair go is that an average dollar earned from work is now more than 10 times likely to be taxed than a dollar in capital gains. And so for a nation that defined itself based on hard work, uh, it is absurd (laughs) that people who aren't lifting a finger are um, able to accumulate gains in such a way. It's it's antithetical to actually the, the whole notion of the fair go. The other thing we need to do in Australia is treat wealth the same as we treat income. I think Australians have a a pretty strong sense that, you know, a lawyer should be paying more tax proportionally to a, a cleaner. We understand progressivity in taxation of income, but we don't treat wealth in the same way. And that is a particularly difficult uh, political challenge. I think the volume of untaxed capital, capital gains outside of the system, is so profound There's growing calls across the world for a progressive wealth tax. You have um, famous economist Piketty has a proposal of a 1% on individual net wealth between 1 to 5 million euros or 2% if you have over 5 million. Uh, There's wealth tax proposals in the US, 20% on tax, tax on households with fortunes over 100 million. And Australia, even we've had a long history of estate and inheritance taxes and I think given that we are looking at, in the case of the housing systems work, the creation of this semi-feudal class relation Mm. where what you're born into now determines your life chances, the only antidote to that kind of uh, rot is to create an estate or inheritance tax base. It's an important point there. Now, Mm. I want to finish, Alison, by asking you something a bit different, I suppose, because you do outline the, the political challenges of some of these changes. But I think the tone of the book is optimistic. You really believe that we can change, change from where we've been going for more than 30 years. I do. I think that we are fighting for the soul of our nation at this point and we are at an egalitarian cliff edge really everything that that we were and we made that was good about Australia 
is hanging by a thread. And so I am optimistic because for young people, they have the least skin in the game with the status quo, the, the way things are set at the moment. And for the most part, these are smart, very empathetic people who, who want to make change. What I explain in the book is that the, the tools for making those cha- that change have been made very difficult for them to grasp because they've been on the arse end of, of this neoliberal system. But I, I am emboldened by history. Uh, people don't go backwards without a fight. And I believe that Australia's youth can lead a, a resurgence of democratic participation in all aspects of our lives. Good place to wrap this up, I think. Alison Pennington, thank you very much for joining us this week on The Money. Thank you. Alison Pennington is the author of Generation f How Young Australians Can Reclaim Their Uncertain Futures. It's a crikey read. And that's it for now. The Money comes to you from Gadigal Land, Sydney. It's produced by Kate McDonald. I'm Richard Aidey. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.